that said, if you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. Luke 17, we're going to start in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, that being Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we look at your word, we ask that your spirit give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. We ask that we would hear what your son is teaching the Pharisees and the disciples about himself and the nature of his kingdom. We ask that you would work in the hearts of those who do not know your son Jesus and who are not members or citizens of his kingdom, that you would work today and open their eyes and their ears and that they would see their need for Jesus and that you would rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your beloved son. We pray for those of us who do know your son, who are citizens of your kingdom, that you would work in us, that we would not long for the things of this world, but that we would long for the consummation of the kingdom, for his final coming, for the day when all the riches of God in Christ Jesus will be ours, and that we'll realize that fully and finally. We pray that we would long for that day, and that we would even ask for it in prayer as Jesus commands us to that we would repent in ways that we need to repent, that your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Jason, can you get me some water? So I note. We, we know that, that life is supposed to be more than what we experience generally. We, we know it is. How, how do I know that? We, we see this when we suffer and die. When there's injustice and tragedy, and we know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We know suffering and, and death in one sense is unnatural and wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. When we see a young child die, or some family member we know and love ravaged by cancer, when we see a, a typhoon hit a country like the Philippines, or a hurricane hit the southern states of the U.S., and people suffer immeasurably and they die, we know this is not the way it's supposed to be. As our own death approaches, as the clock ticks and time slowly catches us until it finally stalks us down and overcomes us and we die, we know that as that approaches that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We also see this when we experience wonderful and transcendent moments. Whether it's great music or great art or great food or a scenic landscape or some nostalgic moment, we experience those great moments, as C.S. Lewis says, as distant echoes of a better country. These are tiny cups of water, dude. Thanks. They are. (laughs) See, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Just a distant echo of what I was hoping for. It's all right. Why do we know that? It's because God has placed eternity on our hearts. We weren't created to sin and die. We were created to bear the image of our creator, our king. We were created to live with him in his kingdom for his glory and our joy. We were created to be his people in his place under his rule and blessing, as one biblical theologian or several now are saying. But we fell into sin. We lost Eden. And we are now God's enemies, lost from our true home, suffering from sin and death. That is now our, if you will, natural state. We are no longer God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing, because of the fall into sin. But God made a promise. A promise that he would send a savior king. Something I addressed quite a bit last week. A Messiah. And that through him and his work, we would once, be, once again be God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. We would live eternally with our king, in his kingdom, for his glory and our joy. This is why Jesus' statement here in Luke is so important. In this passage he makes a declaration that he expects will reorient the lives of his hearers. Jesus' statement is about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as we look at the passage, I really want to focus on four truths about the kingdom. So we're going to look at four truths about the kingdom of God that we get from this passage. There are more truths than that that I could pull out, but I'm just going to focus in on four. Here's the first one. The kingdom of Jesus is already here. Here. 
that the kingdom of Jesus is already here. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. In other words, don't be looking for signs, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, the kingdom of God is already here, it's in your midst. How is that so? How can that be true? How can the kingdom of God already be among them? I think in your NIVs it might say, in them, or is in you. It's better rendered among you or in your midst. The kingdom is already here. You see, the Pharisees are asking Jesus when the kingdom would come, and Jesus has already said more than once when the kingdom would come. He's already told them that the kingdom has arrived in him, that he is the king, and when the king arrives, the kingdom is here, and he's given them plenty of signs of that. Jesus is announcing his kingdom is already here because the king is already here. He's just healed 10 lepers. It's like the Pharisees have completely lost sight of this. He's just healed 10 10 lepers, which is a picture that God's kingdom reverses the curse, and the Pharisees refuse to see that God's kingdom has come with Jesus. They don't want to see it. They aren't buying it. He's announced the kingdom before. Thanks, Randy. Randy has now acted as the Messiah here. (laughs) He's brought what my soul thirsted for. He's announced the kingdom before. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I want to walk through some announcements of the kingdom. Luke chapter 4 and in verse 42. I already looked last week at 4.16 and following in, in this same theme. And this picks up on it again in verse 42. And when it was day... He, that being Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus has already announced that the day that Isaiah prophesied, that the servant that Isaiah was talking about, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come, he announced that in Luke 4, 16, that that day is here. And now here we hear that he's, he's out actively preaching in the synagogues the good news of the kingdom of God. It's not like he's never talked about this before. Look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. <clears throat> Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming, And notice this word, and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. He's been proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, in asking this question, aren't hearing about this for the first time. Look at chapter 9 of Luke, verse 11. Again, when the crowds learned it, they followed him. That's that he'd went across. See, when they learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So Jesus has fed the 5,000. 
or about to feed the 5,000, but he's crossed over. The people are coming to him. He's healing them and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. Luke chapter 11, probably the most clear passage on this, the already nature of the kingdom. Look at verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And Jesus' confrontation with the demons is the confrontation of the Son of God and his kingdom against the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is casting them out. As he comes, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, he's working by Satan's power. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. In other words, I know that you're casting out demons and healing people and feeding thousands of people, but we need a sign. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast, cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now catch this verse, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. As we see in the parallel passage in Matthew, and as we see in Exodus, when the finger of God is the one who inscribes on the tablets the law of God. And Jesus is saying, when you see me at work, you see the finger of God, the one that was alive in the work and working among Moses. You see him working now in me, And through me, and when you see him working, you know the Holy Spirit is here. You know the kingdom of God is upon you. That it's in the midst of you because the king is here. And his spirit is testifying in his work through me that the king is here and his kingdom has arrived. It's already. The kingdom arrived with him and he's made that clear repeatedly through his preaching and his miracles. But the Pharisees have not liked his teaching. They haven't liked it. They've rejected the king and his kingdom because he's not ushering in the physical kingdom they hoped for. They wanted the Messiah to bring in a conquest of the Roman Empire, not to preach against their sinfulness. Right? Jesus arrived. Go get those Romans. And Jesus turns on them and says, you have a greater problem than Rome. Greater problem. It's a problem in your own heart. It's your own sin. See, they thought their greatest problem was Rome and their consequences having been oppressed by a a foreign government. And what Jesus says is, that's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is sin and its consequences. I addressed this some last week. Our greatest problems are not our circumstances. Our greatest need is not for God to clean up our lives. Our great problem is sin and death and the wrath of God that's abiding on us. And Jesus came to save us from sin and death. He came to save us from the wrath of God. Look at Luke 23. Keep your hand in Luke 17. And look look at Luke 23, verse 40. This is in the crucifixion. I'll deal with this passage in, in more detail sometime next year. But... Verse 40, 
There's one of, you know, Jesus is on the cross and there are these two men, they call them the thieves on the cross, probably more likely insurrectionists or men who were rebelling against Rome, but they're on the crosses next to him and one of them is mocking Jesus, but the other rebuked him saying, do do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, in other words, one insurrectionist or thief is saying to the other, we are suffering these consequences justly. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus this, and this this is the thing that, it's one of those statements theologically that's astonishing. Here's a man on a cross being crucified next to another man on a cross being crucified. This man is dying next to him, and he says to this man dying next to him, what? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that doesn't look like a king. A man is being crucified on a cross next to you. Yet this man astonishingly says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's interesting is this man doesn't say, I want you to clean up my life. Jesus, this circumstance of this cross is tough. I was really looking for Jesus. Can you give me five principles for a better business? How about can you clean up my marriage or my family? No, because why? This guy's dying. He knows what's important. He knows what matters now. He knows what his greatest need is. And his need is to be remembered by Jesus, the Messiah, the King. So he can come into his kingdom. And Jesus' promise to him comes right after that. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, Jesus is going to save him. Look at Luke 9, 23. Luke 9, 23. We see a a similar sort of thing here. And he said to all, that's Jesus speaking again, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You see, if our circumstances were our problem, then gaining the whole world would be the great solution. But gaining the whole world doesn't solve our problems. Because our Major problem, the greatest problem, the ultimate problem with us is that we're going to lose our lives eternally because of our sin, so it doesn't profit you if you gain everything this world has to offer and you die in your sins. You've gained nothing at that point. So you don't come to Jesus and use him to fix your marriage and use him to give you perfect children and use him to help you be a more ethical business person and use him to help you figure out how to vote in the ballot box and use him for all sorts of things to heal you of various diseases, to provide for you financially when you need it, but you never come to him as your king who you need salvation from. In that case, you're asking Jesus to help you gain the whole world. Jesus, help me gain the whole world. I don't care if I lose my life in the ultimate sense. And you're asking him for just the opposite of what he promises to provide you. What he promises is, if you will lose your life life for my sake, you will find it. You'll gain it. If you come to me for the solution 
to your ultimate problem, if you come to me to be saved from your sins, I will save you. He goes on in that verse in verse 26, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, in other words, not only ashamed of Jesus, but his teachings, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. That's not what you want in the end, is it? When Jesus returns. And he says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here, speaking of the disciples, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now that's an interesting phrase, because now Jesus is using this kingdom of God in a way that's a bit different than what he's used it already, because he's already, throughout Luke, been talking about the kingdom having arrived when he arrived. And in some sense, he talks about this future, this future kingdom that's coming, but one that the disciples will see in their lifetime, and then we'll see in Luke 17 that he speaks about the kingdom in a third way of this future kingdom that's coming that the disciples won't see in their lifetime. So what does he mean here? What's this future kingdom the disciples see in their lifetime? What's Jesus referring to? Well, the kingdom's already come in him. I think, you know, some scholars say he's pointing to the transfiguration, which is the next passage. I actually think that more likely, as some scholars have argued, that he's talking about his resurrection and ascension, If you look at Luke chapter 24, look there, and this is going to tie into our second point in a minute, so I'll make it. Luke 24, look at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 44. Then he said to them, that's speaking to his disciples after his resurrection, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, the Old Testament's about me and it must be fulfilled. Then he goes on, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and power upon you, he's telling them. We picked that up in Acts. Stay in Jerusalem until that day. But look what happens next. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So Jesus departs. Now, if, if you're like any normal person, when someone you love and cherish, when someone you want as a part of your life on a daily basis leaves, you're quite sad, aren't you? Quite sad. In this case, as he was carried up into heaven, verse 52, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple blessing God. Why are they returning to Jerusalem with great joy on the day when Jesus departed from them? Because they saw their king ascend to his coronation. That's why. They saw the king of kings, the one they followed, their Lord, the Christ, the one who suffered and died for their sins and resurrected on the third day, ascend to be coronated, to sit at the right hand of God, to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, to send his spirit upon them and work among them. 
See, his, his already kingdom is manifested in his rule over his church and his sending of the Spirit upon them. Which leads to the second truth about Jesus' kingdom, which I'm trying to make, is that the kingdom of Jesus is spiritual. So it's already in that Jesus came and that he sent his spirit, and it's spiritual in that it's invisible. It's not something we see. Jesus clearly has not conquered the kingdoms of this world, so how can he speak about the kingdom being here already? He can speak that way because it's a spiritual kingdom or an invisible kingdom. He is bringing salvation to souls. He is rescuing people from the eternal consequences of their sin. That's what he came to do first and foremost. That's why he says in Luke 11, 20, that when you see the finger of God working, you know the kingdom of God has come upon you because the Holy Spirit is at work in and through Jesus. That's why he speaks about the kingdom of God in Luke 13, 18 through 21, as this mustard seed that starts out tiny and spreads and grows this huge plant. That's why he talks about it as this leaven that's in flour that originally, It starts out real small, but then works its way through the whole batch of flour. It's something that's growing and spreading. The spiritual nature of the kingdom is why Jesus told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's why Paul, when he was speaking about the kingdom in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, said this, he has delivered us, that's the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's this already invisible spiritual kingdom. It's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've received that kingdom. It can't be shaken. Thus let us offer To God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So the kingdom arrived in Jesus. The kingdom is already here in Christ. As the resurrected Christ, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means he's the king already. But his rule is a spiritual rule, an invisible rule, and his will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to talk about that more next week when we look at Luke 18 as an extension of what Jesus is teaching here. See, sin is still present. People still die. He is the king and believers are members of his kingdom, but it's currently a spiritual kingdom. That's why we're sojourners or aliens or strangers in this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And if you aren't looking to Jesus in faith, then you are not a member of his kingdom and you remain his enemy. But perhaps as an unbeliever, and and I was this way as an unbeliever for some time, perhaps the, the threat of being under the wrath of God doesn't seem too frightening since you can't see his kingdom right now anyway. What are all these threats about the kingdom of God and the wrath of God? I don't see any of that. It's been a couple thousand years. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Why should I be in a hurry to repent? Further, perhaps as a believer, being a member of God's kingdom doesn't seem too comforting right now. It doesn't seem too encouraging right now because you can't see it either for we walk by faith and not by sight. Which leads us to the next truth about the kingdom of God which Jesus taught. Which is this, third point is the kingdom of Jesus is not yet. 
So it's already, it's invisible or spiritual, and it's not yet. So how can it be not yet when I already said it is already? Because Jesus talks about his kingdom as something that is coming in the future. He talks about it as something that's here now and as something that's coming in the future. Look at Luke 17 and look at verse 22. And he said to his disciples, notice he's turned from the Pharisees to speak directly to the disciples here. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So you're going to look forward to, you, you're going to wish I was around, but I won't be. In that sense, you're going to be looking forward to the day when I rule and reign and have consummated the kingdom, but you won't see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out and follow them. For as, <coughs> excuse me, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In other words, he says the day of the Son of Man is coming, and you're going to see it when it happens. Don't listen to these guys who are telling you, go look for it. Here, here it is, there it is. Don't listen to them. You're going to know when it comes, and when he comes, it's going to be this great day that you're longing for, but you won't see. In other words, it seems to be that he's telling the disciples they're not going to see it in their lifetimes. But what is this day of the Son of Man? What's he talking about? He uses the plural days. If you look down later in the passage in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. It seems to be that he picks up the plural days to parallel with it with the days of Noah. Because later on, he talks about one day of the Son of Man. So, what's the day of the Son of Man? Well, it comes from Daniel 7. Listen to this in 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. There is a day coming in which Jesus will fully consummate and establish his kingdom on earth. Faith will become sight. Jesus will return and he will put sin and death under his feet. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That he will come and he will put his final enemy, death, under his feet. That's why John in Revelation, 9, uh, Revelation chapter 11, as he sees a picture of the end of all things, of the return of Jesus, at the blow, blow of the seventh trumpet in verse 15 says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell down on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who, was, who is and who was. Notice no longer who is to come, because he has come. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for warding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. His kingdom is coming, and he will put all enemies under his feet. So let's look at the fourth truth regarding Christ's kingdom. 
as we walk through the passage, that's this, the kingdom of Jesus, it not only comes, it's not already, not only already here and a spiritual kingdom and a kingdom that's not yet here, but it's a kingdom that when the not yet comes, the kingdom of Jesus will come physically, suddenly, and finally, or visibly, if you will, suddenly, and finally. Look at verse 23 of Luke 17. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, there's going to be all kinds of prognosticators telling you that Christ has come. Come out here and look for him. Go over there and look for him. And I'm going to tell you, you don't need to follow those guys because it's going to be clear when he arrives. As the lightning lights up the sky, so will the return of the Son of Man be. You will know when he comes. It will be unmistakable. It isn't something you have to look for clues for. You don't need to open the newspaper and play pin the tail on the Antichrist to try to figure out when he's coming. You just don't. The coming of Jesus will be obvious and inescapable and comprehensive. So the question is, are you currently a citizen of the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of this world? Look at what he says in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. If you remember, Noah was preaching to these people that judgment was coming and that they should repent. We learned that both in Genesis and in 1 Peter. That they should repent, but they weren't repenting. They weren't turning from their wickedness and to the Lord. They were going on with life as usual, laughing off Noah's warnings. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Listen to the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. In other words, they were carrying on as if all were normal, as if this is all there were, as if nothing comes after this. They believed that they were living the end of the story. There was no end to come, that the end was just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's how they were living until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The, day, the coming of the Son of Man will be like that, Jesus says. Or likewise, verse 28, just as it was in the days of Lot... They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. In other words, they were carrying on with life. We're not worried about our sin. We don't need to be repenting. We're just going to carry on with life. There's no judgment coming for any of this. There's nothing that follows this. And he says... But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Do you hear that? There's not going to be any mystery about his coming, it's going to be obvious. And there isn't going to be any figuring out the day he's coming. It's going to come suddenly. 
It's going to come upon you at a time you don't expect. It'll be obvious, and it'll be sudden, and it'll be inescapable. Look at what he says in verse 31. On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. In other words, don't worry about your stuff here on that day. Remember Lot's wife. What's the admonition? Lot's wife was still longing for Sodom, for this world. Remember her. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. We heard that before in Luke 9, didn't we? But whoever loses life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. We don't know whether the one taken or the one left is the one under judgment. We assume from the context and a few other passages that the one taken is saved and the one left is judged, but we don't ultimately know just from this passage what's meant here. The point is, is there's a separation. Someone is falling under judgment and someone is not. One will be taken and one left. There will be two women grinding together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And to clean it all up for us and make it all clear so we understand it, he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <clears throat> Thank you. Here's what he's getting at. The coming will be visible, physical, sudden, and final, inescapably final. So the question is, are you currently a citizen of the kingdom of Christ or of the kingdom of this world? What are you living for? Jesus' admonition to the disciples are there's two ways to live. You can live like Noah or like those around him. You can live like Lot or like Sodom and Gomorrah. You can live like the disciples of Jesus looking forward to the consummation of the kingdom or you can live like the world who lives for the here and now. You can live like those who lose their lives here and so gain eternal life or you can live like those who invest their lives here and so lose eternal life. See, those are the options. If you're not a citizen of Christ's kingdom, you're his enemy and when he returns, you will suffer his judgment. Scripture's clear about that. And I tell you that because I'm not ashamed of Christ or his words. So I urge you to look to Jesus now and be saved from the wrath to come. Look to him now and be forgiven your sins and become a member of his kingdom. His return could be at any moment, at a time you don't expect, so don't waste your time. Look to him. That's why Paul says today is the day of salvation. He's talking about this age that we're in. He doesn't mean if people don't repent that the next day you can't be saved. Today's the day of salvation. Tomorrow that deals off. That's not his point. His point is that we're in the age in which Christ is saving people. You turn to him now, but tomorrow, in the sense of an age, the day that Jesus returns will be the day of judgment. The day of the Son of Man. So you look to him now. If you're a believer and thus a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, I encourage you to continue to seek the kingdom of God. 
Following Jesus means a radical reorientation of your life. The world is looking for something else. You're to look for this. You're to invest your life in his kingdom. Look, look at Luke. Look, look back in Luke. Um, actually, you know what? Go to Matthew 6. I'm going to show you this in Matthew 6. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus wanted his disciples to hear this. And it plays into the seeking of the kingdom, the reorientation of your life, lives, believers. Look at verse 25 of Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In other words, why are you worrying about and being anxious about all this stuff? Your heavenly Father will take care of you. He takes care of the birds. They don't have savings accounts. They don't have retirement. And God feeds them. Stop being anxious about stuff. Start trusting him. He goes on to say, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to your lifespan? That's a cubit. It's 18 inches. It's like, which of you can take a step forward? Can't add anything. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the unbelievers, seek after all these things. See, they're seeking after eating and drinking and marrying and being married. They're seeking after investing their lives in this world. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not even worried about that stuff, the stuff of this world. We're looking forward to our eternal home with our king in which we see his kingdom consummated. That's what we're seeking after. That is how our lives are expressed. That is why we lose them for his sake. We pursue his kingdom, which means we love him and we love other people, which means that we fulfill his commission, that we take the gospel to those who haven't heard, to the ends of the earth. Which is why we pray constantly his kingdom would come. Because we're looking forward to that day. We understand that the end of the story isn't, I have a nice wife and I have nice kids and I have a nice house and I have a nice job and all of life. Isn't it nice? I have nice neighbors even. Everything is so nice in America. That word originally meant stupid. That's how I feel when we say everything is nice. It's just so stupid to say that all the time, right? That's not what life is about. That's not the end of the story. Believers, the end of the story is the coming of your king and the consummation of his kingdom and living eternal glory with him. That ought to reorient your whole life. What matters to you and how you live how you spend your money, how you pray, 
how you think about raising your children, how you can think about your marriage, how you think about the work that you do, it ought to all be changed, reoriented, based upon the fact that Christ's coming kingdom is our hope. That's the end of the story. See, we may, may we take seriously beyond that stuff, may we take seriously the threats that, that hang over the heads of our friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors who don't believe. Think about how many times we walk past our neighbors, friends, family members, and coworkers who do not know Christ and we watch them eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and we never warn them and we never tell them about the coming of Jesus. His first coming or his second coming. We don't tell them about either. Do we really take seriously the end of the story if we don't? See, our hearts should break over lost people and lost nations. The reason we started Radius International as a church as part of starting that, to train people to go to unreached, unengaged people groups, is because we wanted to help people who were willing to give their lives up because they knew the end of the story was not the here and now. They knew the end of the story was the kingdom with Jesus, so they were going to throw away their lives to see these people groups who've never heard of Jesus hear of him and be saved. How can we do any less if we really take seriously the end of the story? May we get on our faces and pray for their salvation. May we open our mouths and preach the good news of the kingdom. So we ought to be doing. People are lost. The story doesn't end with them eating and drinking and being merry. The story ends with their death and judgment. We ought to take that seriously. You know, Charles Spurgeon, and I'm going to conclude with this, talks about how talked, he's been dead for over 100 years, talked about um, how we ought to be praying and pleading for people's souls. And he, he gives the example of, um, of a parent, essentially, or an adult who walks into a room and finds a dead child in their bed. Now, if you walked into your child's room and found your child laying there on their bed dead, you would, Charles Spurgeon says, basically throw yourselves upon them, wrap them in your arms, and plead with God and pray to God to give them life. Bring them back. And you would do so with much tears. You would be on your face pleading Bring them back. Give them life. And he says, yet our children walk around spiritually dead all the time, and how much do we plead for their salvation? Yet our friends and neighbors and coworkers walk around dead spiritually all the time, and how often do we plead with tears that God would save them? You see, this is... This isn't the end of the story, folks. The end of the story is Jesus' return and his coming kingdom. That gives us great hope, but it gives great threats to those who don't turn to him. 
So if you're one of them, turn to him now and be saved. And if you're not, I mean, if you are a believer, I encourage you to start pleading for your unbelieving friends that God would save them. Start opening your mouth and talking about Jesus. Make sure they know the end of the story. That's what he's called us to do. Let me pray. Father, we ask. We ask that you would work in us in such a way that we would take seriously and rejoice in the fact that your son's kingdom has come and that we've been saved. That we would look forward to and long for the consummation of his kingdom, his coming and his putting an end to sin and death and suffering and eternal life with him. And Father, we ask that you would sober us, that we would recognize the judgment that is upon our friends and neighbors and family and coworkers, upon people groups who've never heard of your son, that we would be sobered to consider the end of the story and that we would not let the opportunity pass by to tell them about it. That we would tell them about Jesus. We would tell them about their need for him and how the story ends in him and apart from him. And that they would be saved. Father, give us hearts that rejoice Rejoice in the coming of Jesus, our Savior, and at the same time, hearts that break over those who are lost and who will be judged on that great day. And give us a fervor to preach the gospel to them, to speak of it to them, so that they would be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.